Amen. Friends, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We are continuing our study. Now, it's been a few weeks since we have been together in Ephesians. We took pause there over spring break and also looked at the resurrection narrative in 1 Corinthians last week. But we return then to a two-semester-long study here. And so we're in the second half of the book. And by way of reminder, I want to just uh, say a few things about where we are in the passage, uh, in the text. Chapters 1 through 3 are about God's grace, the, the generosity of God in giving to you the gospel. And in giving you the gospel, giving you Jesus, and in giving you Jesus, giving you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Every blessing of the Holy Spirit. God has withheld nothing from you. Now, we've said again and again, that doesn't mean that you, you get it all. <laughs> you, I mean, that you understand it all, that you appropriate it all, that you experience it all right here to its greatest degree. No, I mean, there is much that you will taste in heaven of the blessings that are already yours that you don't yet taste in fullness. Not because they're not yours. Because we're broken, we're, we're still sinful, we live in a fallen world, we see us through a glass darkly, we have much to learn. But God has blessed us, richly blessed us already. Then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about this. God, the Apostle Paul at chapter 4, verse 1, is urging us, God is urging us through the Apostle, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Having become Christians and received so much from God, we're to learn to live appropriately in light of who we have become in Christ, what we have received from Christ. And so that's where we are in the book. We're thinking about how to live. He said, to any and all who believe in Jesus, you are already saints. You are already set apart by God and for God. You are already Uh, children of the Father in heaven who loves you. So, therefore, live for him. Therefore, imitate the Father in love. The the last time we were together at the early part of chapter 5, he had said, you are light in the Lord. That's your identity. That's who you are. Now, therefore, live as children of light. Well, tonight he's going to tell us you are already, this is surprising, you are already in Christ. You are wise. You are the wise people is what he's going to say to you. Then he's going to say, now live in accordance with that, and that's what it looks like. And so let me invite you to consider Ephesians then, chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, as we consider what it means to live as Christians in this world. Hear now the word of God. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, bless us, teach us, help us. I pray that you would open your word to us, that you would speak, that you would do good to our souls, that your word would come to us with power in much human weakness. Would your Holy Spirit do a great work among us? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Paul says in verse 15, walk not as unwise, but as wise. And he's not actually saying walk wisely rather than unwisely. He's saying walk as the kind of people who are wise, as opposed to the kind of people who are unwise. Because you are wise. You are the wise ones, he tells Christians. Now, we'll get to that. If that sounds arrogant, I want to dispel you of that myth. But, but I want you to understand what he's, what he's doing is he's describing who you are. He's not telling you to live wisely right there, though he's going to follow up telling you you are the wise ones by then telling you what that wise life ought to look like. He wants us to grow in our living it out. But this is your identity. You are the beloved people of God. You are deeply loved by him. Paul has said elsewhere, uh, you are the children of light, as we said, so you are wise. God isn't, in other words, let me relieve you from it. God is not saying here, you know, you all just need to work harder than you've been working. And really living an intentional Christian life, being extremely careful to walk in wisdom so that hopefully God might just call you wise. That sounds like an awful lot of hard work, a tremendous amount of effort, and a kind of slavery, really. And and besides that, uh, if you're anything like me, your constant failure at walking wisely, which you know you do fail at by all the accumulated experiences you're gaining of how to live more wisely than you have done. Your constant failure will lead you to constant fear that you'll never be what God wants you to be. Or your supposed successes will leave you rather proud and arrogant as if you got it right. And well, look at some of those folks who didn't. We were wiser than they. And then maybe, well, you know, God really must think, he must pretty, think pretty highly of me. I mean, he, he, he probably calls me wise. But maybe not so much those other Christians. You know, I've I've lived well, you might say to yourself. Rather foolish, you might say. But what I want to tell you is that's the opposite of the gospel. That is not what the gospel means, and it is not how Christians are to think of themselves. The gospel turns all of that upside down, that kind of thinking. In the gospel, God adopts us and then tells us to live like children. He doesn't find people who live like it and then adopt them. In the gospel, God doesn't say, get it right and I'll claim you as my own. Likewise, with wisdom, he credits us as the wise, the wise ones, and then tells us to live as wise people. And the reason he does that and the way that he does that is through the gospel. Christ has become for us wisdom from God. Uh, If you were to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment in your Bible, 
Paul makes the startling statement beginning at verse 27 when he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Go down to verse 29. So that, why did he do that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He, God, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has made Christ your righteousness. I hope that you know that. All your hope of being right before God is found in Christ who lived well, perfectly and righteously. And you're credited with that. Christ here, it is said, is also your wisdom. He has become your wisdom and you are credited by God as being wise because you are in Christ. The wisdom of Christ has been laid to your account. Therefore, live in light of that. So he's not saying here, if you thought we were being arrogant and proud about this, he's not saying, you know, you're some brilliant intellectual. You ought to be teaching in a university or, you know, doing research at the Ph.D. level because you guys really have it together. That is not what he's saying to Christians. But it is wisdom to turn from sin to salvation. Doesn't mean you know everything there is to know. But it is, it is God's wisdom to turn from sin to salvation. And God, in his great grace... For his glory has taken the foolish and made them wise in Christ. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 1. So this is the point. Um, we are, he says, the wise. And then how does that work itself out? Well, look carefully then, he says. How should we live? Look carefully at how you live. And uh, he's not saying anything you should be surprised by. You live carefully about the things that you care about. If you care about your home, your marriage, your children, your hobbies, your car, uh, whatever it is you care about, your appearance, your food, your diet, your health, if, if you care about those things, you look carefully at how you live. And so he wants you to look carefully at how you walk with Christ because he knows that you care. And you care because God has made you wise in Christ. So... Uh, that sounds like a long introduction. I realize it is. So here's his three points then. How, how then do we live that out? What, what should that look like? And he speaks to three areas of our lives. And he speaks to these three areas. How we use our time, how we employ our minds, and our dependence on the Holy Spirit. Those three things. Look with me at the first one. Here's how to live as wise people Verse 15 in Ephesians, which I should turn back to, Paul says this. Look carefully that and you walk not as unwise but as wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He's saying, you know, wise people know that time keeps slipping away, slip, slip, slipping away. He knows that wise people know that time is a precious commodity And once it's gone, it's gone. The older you get, the faster it seems to go. And college students who are juniors and seniors know it has gone 
like a snap compared to freshman year. But college itself has gone like a snap compared to high school. And those of you of my age know that you can't believe you're of the many decades you are. Where did the time go? It just keeps slipping past. And he says, time is precious. The time given to you in this life, it's important. It's precious. It's a gift from God to you. Every day is a gift. And though we all get the same number of moments in a day and the same number of days in a week, we do not all get the same number of days in our lives. And so he says, be wise in the way that you use the time. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name correct, but uh, in a book, A Distant Grief, there was a national pastor in Africa named Kifa Simbangi. And the story is told of, of, of how he and his family barely escaped from brutal oppression and terror in his home country of Uganda. Uh, They made their way to Philadelphia where they encountered some Christians who cared for their family. And one day, his wife said to him, tomorrow, I'm going to go and buy some clothes for the children. And immediately, she and her husband began to weep. Because of the constant threat of death under which they had lived for so long, it was the first time in many years that they had dared even to speak the word tomorrow and it caught them by surprise their experience forced them to realize what's true of all of us there is no assurance that we will get tomorrow the only thing that we can be sure of is having the moment that we have right now and so so in in the gospels to the self-satisfied farmer who had these grandiose plans to build and build bigger better barns to store his crops jesus said you fool this very night your soul is required of you and he'd already lived his last tomorrow so how do you spend your time how do you choose to use your time we need to ask ourselves that paul says redeem the time when he when he speaks of using the time wisely he, he actually uses the word for redemption that's Picked up in Galatians 3 where it says of Jesus that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's it's a word that means to buy something back or to purchase something. Now he's clearly not saying that you can buy more time for yourself or that you can even store up your time as if you haven't spent it or that you could ever get it back. But but we do know that God, God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. If your life has been a disaster... God can undo that. God can help you make the most of your time moving forward. But use your time wisely. Don't waste it, he says. Your time needs to be guarded because the days are evil. The the age in which you live is an evil age. And so redeem the time for a good use is what he's saying. Uh, So what do you, let me ask you this question. What do you instinctively think of doing when you have nothing to do? That's a good test for you. Uh, Are you a time waster or a time redeemer? In college, life can feel extremely busy. And you can make yourself busy. And if you've waited all semester to study, then you really feel busy this month. But ask anybody who's out of college, and they'll tell you that you'll never have as much time as you have 
now, as much free time to yourself. So make the most of it. Make the most of it to walk with the Lord and invest in relationships and be educated for a lifetime of ministry and serving the Lord however he calls you. Don't squander your time. One of the chief ways for all of us in our culture to squander our time is to focus on trivialities. Things that don't really matter much. The the photos of someone else's party might be important to you. But I doubt that day after day and week after week, your friends are having so many parties that are of such consequence that you must, again, see what others are doing. Especially, I might say, to myself and to you. If you're giving your time to social media to track people you don't really know and who don't really know you, when you're in the same room with people you actually live with and are called to love, be cautious. And if you have the luxury of keeping your own schedule, you're the master of your own days, why not plan your day as if serving another person? For you are in fact serving the Lord Jesus Christ, your master. Why not do that? And if you are an alcohol, a workaholic, it's the alcoholics. In, it's in the text, friends, so that's why it's on the mind. Well, that and, and the, uh, the game that we played on this retreat where you had to circle the bat ten times with your head rooted to it, and then you were supposed to run across the field, and, and of course everybody runs in a half circle and falls over, and, and somebody caught a photo of your pastor trying to get up, and it... Well, it looks like what I might have just mentioned before, but I assure you it was not that. See Mark Hansen and somebody somebody who sent him a photo. No, no, no. But see, here's the if you're a workaholic, you could be so you could be working so hard that you because you say to yourself, I will not be a time waster. You know, I will get things done. But but if your focus is not on eternity But on the things of this life solely and from that perspective, you're actually wasting every minute you have been given. So, the Bible says elsewhere, do good while you can. Christians, it says, Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to to those who are of the household of faith. That is what Jesus did for us. He said, I must be about my father's business What was the father's business? Well, it meant he had to grow up, and that was a long, patient process in his life. He had to eat, he had to sleep, he had to learn the Bible, he had to learn carpentry as best we know under under Joseph's tutelage, he had to rest, he celebrated weddings as well as mourning at funerals. He went on vacation and retreats. He got away from his home place with others for the distraction of it, for the time away with others. He had time to pray, to minister, to teach, all while loving his siblings, his parents, his cousins, his aunts, his uncles, his neighbors, his friends, and strangers. Jesus did that for you. He loved you to the end with his time. Redeem the time, Paul says. Put it to good use. Then he turns our minds to the employment of our minds at verse 17 when he says, following up on this, 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He wants us to make wise use of our time, but he doesn't want, to be, he doesn't want us to be self-directed on it. He doesn't want you to be self-willed about the use of your time. He doesn't want you to just ponder to yourself Uh, Whatever it is you want to do, well, that would be the right thing to invest in. No, no, he wants you to get good guidance from God. And so he says, don't be foolish. Here he uses the word that means mindless or uh, unthinking. Don't be that way, but rather give your mind to understanding and discerning the will of the Lord for you. Put your effort into getting a hold of the Lord's will and then doing that. That will be the best use of your time, of course. So learn to discern the will of the Lord. And to, to do that, you don't need some mystical experience. Uh, you don't need to go into a closet and hope God zaps you. You need to apply your mind to God's word. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. 29, we, we talked about this in our small group at the retreat, uh, says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are the secret things of the Lord that belong only to him. What tomorrow holds for anybody, you know, providence. We don't know it until it unfolds. You don't know the will of God for who you'll marry until you say, I do. I mean, definitively. Once you say, I do, it is definitively God's will for you to love that person every day as a spouse. But you see what I'm saying? But there are many things revealed that are absolutely clear for us to do. In other words, finding the will of God is, is not, it's, it's not like um, hitting the bullseye on a dartboard where you're just throwing darts, hoping you hit the target every once in a while, but living in fear that, You know, every day you may be in or out of the will of God for you, depending upon either what time you wake up. Some of you, I know, condemn yourselves for not being in the will of God because of the hour you awake. Or because of what you wear or what you eat or what you, what, whether you say the right thing at just the right moment in your conversations with people. You wonder, am I in the will of God? Am I out of the will of God? And I'm saying to you, that that must, that's, that's exhausting. I've lived that way. Trying to get specific direction from God about each and every detail of life when he hasn't promised you that. And how frustrating, not only exhausting, but how frustrating. If you had to find the will of God for you about each upcoming event in your life. So, for instance, whether you ought to eat the chocolate pudding or the banana pudding after dinner. I mean, we all know the will of God for you. You should eat the banana pudding <laughs> so that there's more chocolate pudding for the rest of us. I tease. But the will of God is not a bullseye to be hit, to be figured out ahead of time so that you just nail it right in the middle. Otherwise, you've missed the will of God. The will of God is actually a revealed framework in which you live. God has already said to you, here's my will for your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that look like? It looks like the Ten Commandments. That is the revealed will of God for you. And if you want to know what it means to love your neighbor, it means that you care about and support them in their marriage. It means that you care about and support them in life and health and property 
You tell the truth and you don't lie. I mean, this is the revealed will of God for you. So instead of praying every day as you sit at the side of your bed, should I put the white socks on or the black socks on? I mean, really, what's the will of God for me here? And then waiting until you get zapped, and he's not going to zap you with that information. You put some socks on, if you want to wear socks. And then you go love somebody. Because God has revealed that to you. This is why Martin Luther put it somewhat like this. Love God and do what you want. In in some ways, it's just not more complicated than that. Love God. That's the first command. That's the great command. You get that one in line, and none of us does that perfectly, I realize. But love God and do what you want. And because you love God, of course, what you want has begun to be loving your neighbor as yourself. So we we need to think about, but, but then you have to think about, you have to apply your mind to, well, then how do I love this person in my home? And how do I love that neighbor and friend and that fellow church member? You have to, th- he doesn't want you to be mindless, but thinking and to discern the will of the Lord here. So we need to be, we need the people who embrace Romans 12 too, right? To not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is what Jesus did, friends. He learned God's word from infancy and he discerned God's will and then he lived it. He grew in wisdom. So don't be unthinking or mindless. Put your mind to learning the will of God. That's the second thing. First is about time. Second is about your mind and the will of God. The last one is this. How do you actually do that? How do you live what you know to be what you should do? How do you live it out? He says depend on the Holy Spirit. Verses 18 through 21, he turns right to this command. On the one hand, don't get drunk with wine or any other alcoholic beverage, of course, is what he means. Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there is, there's a contrast comparison here with drunkenness and wine. There's the command itself, and then there's the consequences of the command, which is given for you in the five participles he uses. All the I-N-G words where he says speaking to one another, singing, and making melody, and giving thanks, and submitting. All those I-N-G words. So let's walk through this just a bit. He says... He says this then, depend upon the Holy Spirit to help you. And, and, he, and he paints this contrast comparison with the role of wine versus the role of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And I want to say as a side note, he isn't forbidding Christians to drink wine or other alcoholic beverages in moderation. All things are created by God and to be enjoyed with thanksgiving to the Lord in their proper way. Um, It's one of God's good gifts that he gave to man. The psalmist said, God gives wine that makes glad the heart of man. Jesus made the best wine at the wedding. Wine is a picture in the Bible, throughout the Bible, of uh, celebrations before the Lord. Heaven is pictured as uh, as, uh, flowing with wine. Milk and wine, the milk and wine of the gospel. We want to say that. Paul even told Timothy, take a little wine with your water because of your stomach illness. He had a medicinal use for it here. So he's not, he's not forbidding the enjoyment in moderation of these things, friends. But he is saying it must not lead to drunkenness. He's forbidding the abuse and not the godly use. Now... Um, friends, that doesn't mean anybody in here who doesn't drink has to start drinking. You don't want to drink? Don't drink. 
Anything you can't do in faith is sin to you. And some of you aren't of age to be drinking. Some of you don't like the taste, and that's fine too. You don't have to do it. We just want to be sure that we're reminded that we call God's good gifts good and not call his good gifts evil, even if the evil of our hearts misuses them. I, I, uh, I have an acquaintance who I haven't seen in years. He was a friend who I just haven't kept in touch with for the last couple of decades who became a Christian, he and his wife, and then eventually his family because he was invited over to fellow Christians' home one time and they served wine at dinner, and they actually gave thanks in the prayer to the God of the fruit of the vine. And as a non-Christian, he had never heard a Christian speak positively about God's good gifts ever, including alcohol. And it just got him thinking. Maybe the good things of life are from this God. What must this God be like? And he eventually was brought to faith in Christ. Um, anyway, Paul's point here is wine does influence and... The Holy Spirit influences. And he says, don't be influenced by wine in destructive ways that cause recklessness in life, but be influenced by the Holy Spirit who actually gives you self-control rather than helping you lose self-control. People get drunk to end up in wild, uncontrolled actions, recklessness, too much alcohol leads to people behaving sometimes like animals, like less than human. And in contrast, the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit at work in Christians, influencing them, leads us actually to be more human, to be more like Christ, more like what we were made to be. And actually, there's one further point I'll add on this. The reason he's contrasting these two things, I know this thing about wine seems to come out of nowhere in the book of Ephesians, is because at Ephesus, there was a cult pagan way of worshiping a god that involved gaining inspiration from that God by going into the temple and getting drunk. And you were said to get inspiration from that God through drunkenness, through visions and other things. And he's actually saying this, no, what I want you from, from you Christians is not to get inspiration from God that way, not to get direction, not to get the will of the Lord from that way, but to gain it rather under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And in that light, the Spirit's help, in that light, the parallel passage in Colossians, where Paul picks up this identical theme. He talks about all these same ideas. Rather than mentioning the Spirit there, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, If you look at those passages sometime, you'll see that on the one hand in Ephesians he mentions the Spirit, and in Colossians he mentions the Word. But in both he mentions them, that dwelling in you, filling you, uh, having their way with you. And he's basically saying, don't resist. Don't resist the influence of God's Word and God's Spirit in your life. It's a real danger to neglect either or to resist either. Uh, to change the metaphor, we, we might say it this way. The, the word gives you the tracks to run on, and the spirit puts the steam in the engine to help you do it. And so there's the command. We, he says, all should in an ongoing way be filled with the spirit of God. We need to say a couple of things about this. He's not saying, well, you know, you already have part of the spirit, and now later you need to get, like, more of the spirit. As if the spirit is a thing and you can cut in parts. The Spirit is a person. You have all of the Holy Spirit in you. You have received the Spirit of God. He's already said in Ephesians 1 that 
dear Christians, you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's not telling you that you need to get something you do not have. As if there are Christians who are filled with the Spirit and Christians who aren't. His language here doesn't say get something you do not have. Get filled because you don't. His actual language is keep on being filled continuously because he's speaking to Christians and he knows that they already have been filled by the Holy Spirit, the way the Bible uses this word. And so we, we want to just be cautious. There are some in the charismatic movement who will say, well, that you don't really get the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian. You can belong to Jesus and believe in Jesus and get saved, but you need some second event in which the Holy Spirit comes into your life in some new way. You could be born again, you could, you could be saved, you could be united to Jesus, but, you, but you, you might lack the experience of the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, you already have the Spirit. You've been sealed with the Spirit, you've been baptized with the Spirit, you, you are filled with the Spirit. Go on, keep being filled with the Spirit is what he's saying. And he says it to all of us, it's plural, it's a plural command. Everybody do this. In other words, he's saying, because all of you have the Spirit, all Christians. He's not telling some in the crowd to get what they don't have. You already have every spiritual blessing in Christ, every blessing of the Spirit in Christ. It's the Spirit who united you to Jesus. And this is passive voice, friends. This is something you cannot do for yourself, but you need to receive. In that sense, you're active. You need need to receive. You need to invite. You need to allow. You need to let yourself be again and again, moment by moment, day by day, the, the person who depends upon the Spirit of God to live for Christ. That's what he's calling to you and to me. Be receptive. And how will you know if that's going on in your life? How will you, the effects of the Spirit of God are Christians will talk to each other, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You'll, you'll have a desire. The Spirit works a desire in Christians to be of some help to other Christians. That doesn't mean that the Spirit overcomes all your shyness or all your immaturity and you're just not quite sure what to say or all your fears and anxieties. But the Spirit places within the people of God a desire for the people of God to help the people of God. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And, and singing and making melody to the Lord. The Spirit places in the, in the heart of heart a desire to praise the Lord. To give thanks to the Lord, he goes on to say, from the heart. And the Spirit makes us willing, he says, to be submissive to one another. To line up alongside one another as under a general. But to come alongside one another under Christ our leader. And to say to one another... Not, what may I get from you, but what may I give to you? Not, what do you owe me, but what do I owe you? Not, what rights do I have for you to serve me, but how may I responsibly serve you? This is what he's saying, the effects of the Spirit of God will be on the people of God. Go on being influenced by that Spirit. To live out the will of God to make the best use of the time God gives you. Let's pray. Father, help us with all these things.
to walk in your ways for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.